Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, podcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center. If you have ever wondered what it was like to work with Anna Wintour at Vogue or start your own incredible online marketplace for stylish children's clothing, well, then do I have the woman for you. Silvana Durrett is going to join us after a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I am so excited to have a friend and an amazing woman to speak to today. Silvana Durrett is the founder and CEO of Maisonette, a stylish online marketplace that helps grown-ups shop for kids. She started this website after a 14-year career at Vogue, and I cannot wait to hear all about it. Silvana, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Thank you so much, Lydia, and thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here. Well, I have to say, when I think of you, I obviously always think of fashion, Mm -hmm. whether it be fashion for someone my age or fashion for kids. You seem to have covered the gamut. (laughs) Was this always who you were starting off as a younger child? There are many photos of me in sort of all manner of getup. So I think I was always drawn to that kind of very girly kind of thing. My daughter is the same way. My middle daughter is not that way at all. (laughs) But yes, I think my mom was a big influence for me. She was an actress and she had this incredible closet and I would wear all of her clothes all of the time. She was constantly like, you know, shushing me out of her closet and trying to get her things back. But I think so. I think it was always sort of in me. I think I need to dig back into this. Your mom was an actress. Yes. And you grew up in L.A. I grew up in L.A. at a time where I think it was just the movie business, right? Yeah. And I think that's changed a lot since I've been there. That was, you know, obviously 40 years, you know, 30, 40 years ago. There's a ton more diversity in terms of, you know, just what people are doing. You know, it's not just actors who are waiters at your nearest restaurant anymore. But at the time, it was very much that. My mom was sort of one of the first Latina actresses to kind of rise up. You know, it was her and this was prior to Salma Hayek and and all of these sort of mega stars. But so she was kind of typecast as the Latina mom and everything. So she was in La Bamba. She was in Stand and Deliver. It was like if there was a Latina mom and anything going on in Hollywood, that's who they It was your mom. Yeah, (laughs) there she was. Was it cool? Did you understand what your mom was doing at that point? Was she just your mom who would probably leave? And I ask this because I leave to go on stage every night and I often say to my kids, you just have to think of me as an actress. Like I have to go and do things. So what was that like to have a working mom who was out there with this fabulous wardrobe? Was it cool or were you just like, mom, so cool. And it was so cool because she had a real message around sort of like being Mexican, we're Mexican mm-hmm. and sort of our place in California and the history. And, you know, she's one of 10. And so everything she did was, you know, we were in numerous parades in East LA and we'd, you know, we do all these things and it made me have a sense of pride for where I came from. I also was proud of her for sort of being a representative and she was also an actor. So it was all very cool and inspiring for sure. And what was your dad like? My dad is certainly not Mexican. He's, (laughs) I like to say he's like the whitest man ever. He's from like Scottish, Irish, every sort of like European 
nation. He is a director. So they met, you know, in the industry, as it were. And he did a ton of sports movies were his thing. He was sort of more known for The Sting. He wrote The Sting. So he won an Academy Award when he was like 25 or 26. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So was L.A. fun for you as a child? Did you enjoy growing up there? I loved it. I, you know, I did love it. It was like the era, you know, my contemporaries were people like Kim Kardashian and like Paris Hilton. And so all that was kind of bubbling and that was kind of odd and fascinating to be around. And ultimately, I think why I left, because I sort of felt like I wanted to get out of that movie. You know, everyone in my family is in the movie business. I wanted to do something different. I went all the way, you know, to New Jersey for school. And I sort of never looked back. But I did really enjoy my time there. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely something that people talk about. I mean, I yeah. grew up in Louisiana and yeah. I love having grown up there. I feel like that's so much a part of who I am. But I also equally love having moved to New York and I love that part of my life as yes. well. So I get that sort of both and feeling. Mm-hmm. So you said this, but you came East Coast yep. for college. You went to Princeton. Yep. And tell me what that was like, because I, I remember even coming to boarding school from Louisiana. It was a real whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't even know what boarding school was. Yeah. All of my friends at Princeton had gone to boarding school. And I, you know, in my mind, I associated boarding school with military school. Yeah. And so that's like I was in Louisiana. I was, we that. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, these are all like problem, problem children. Yeah, How did yeah. they get into Princeton? Exactly. I don't understand. Is it like a feeder? Of, you know, yeah, I didn't understand what boarding schools were. I didn't understand what lacrosse was. No one understood what volleyball was, which is what I played. Yeah. And so it was great for me to sort of expand my horizons. I had no idea about East Coast culture. And, and it was a big Southern school, too. So yeah. I learned a lot about the South and sort of fell in love with the South while being there. It was so great. I will say Princeton is, you know, I say this a lot to my husband and he's somewhat offended, but I say this is the best four years of my life. Obviously, (laughs) outside of the birth of my children and my husband and all those (laughs) things, but it was such a formative and awesome experience. And so where did you go from Princeton? You didn't go home. Straight to New York. Straight to New York. (laughs) And did you know that you were always going to live in New York? Yes. My sister lived there. I tended to do whatever my sister did. We were from a divorced family. And so she was really like my rock through a lot of the divorce. And so she also went to Princeton. You know, the story goes on. We also actually named our theses sort of very similarly. Our husbands like to remind us. They put them next to each other and they're like, this is the same thesis, basically. (laughs) But so I followed her. And also I got to see sort of her life, her life in Princeton, her life in New York. And I always wanted that. It was sort of, you know, the creme de la creme. It was so cool to be in. I would come to New York on the weekends to see her. And I loved the life that she was living with her friends, like even though they were in this tiny apartment. And but it really was an inspiration. And it was always an inspiration for me to work harder, to get to that next milestone so that I could get into Princeton and then like get the job in New York and all of those things. Were there moments where you feel like you were really living who you were? Were you just kind of trying to figure it out along the way? I was just trying to figure it out. I think most kids at that age are confident because you're coming out of college and life is sort of there for the taking and you just think that you can do whatever you want. I think in some ways my confidence has waned since then, right? There's so much life kind of happens and you have all these sort of challenges and then you start to question things. But at that time, I felt pretty confident. I was sort of like, I just graduated from Princeton and I'm going to go into fashion and I'm not going to be in the movie business. And, you know, you're like, I'm doing this on my own, you know, and but I think you need that. Yeah. I think you need that to launch. Yeah. I think you're completely right. Yeah. So where was your first stop after Princeton? So I had no job. (laughs) I had no job. I was living with Adam, which was not, first of all, Catholic, Mexican Catholic family, like 
my, I don't even think my mom knows this, but I was literally, we were living in his apartment with eight of his friends. Wonderful. Yeah, what we were sleeping on setup. the floor. It was disgusting. It's a very New York, for those of you who do not live in New York City, <laughs> anyone who lived in New York City in their 20s is nodding along with this it's with no disgusting. judgment and probably did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. There were, there were more, there were rooms that didn't have windows that mm-hmm. they would just put walls up. Yep. We had a windowed room, thank God. And we had no bed, so we slept on the floor. I had no job. He would go to work. He would come back and I'd still be there like cleaning the toilet. And he'd be like, what are you doing with your life? Because the reality was I had submitted my resume to many places. And at the time, resumes, I think I may have emailed. It was like the beginning of email. Yeah, Email was not secure, right? Like you did not feel safe or that somebody had received it. So I had sent my resume to Condé Nast as purely informational. I had also faxed it. There were still faxes. Yes. And I hadn't heard back and I wasn't necessarily in a rush. Yeah, because you had (laughs) Adam's Palace. It was wonderful. (laughs) And so one day my friend had told me that she had just gone into interview for uh, Sarah Clark, actually. Oh, yeah. She was like, I just interviewed for to be Anna Wintour's assistant. I was like, I just sent my resume to them. I wonder if Connie Nass even got it. And so I called the HR department and I said, do you have my resume? I faxed it. They said they did not receive my resume. I refaxed it. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, can you come in just for an informational general, get to know you, whatever. And in my mind, I was like, I will do whatever you want me to do. You know, I had a list of magazines I thought were cool. And I came in in a very nerdy very corporate look. I was not expecting to meet, you know, I was expecting to meet with HR. I had 11 interviews that day. In the same day? In the same day. Where they just bounced you around had, from person to person? Yeah. And <laughs> like, I, I don't even remember who I met with. And then finally, I'm up at Vogue and I meet with the managing editor at the time who was incredible, like a Southern woman who I, I remember the interview so well. And then I met with Anna's assistants and then I met with her. And I was quaking in my boots. I was like, can I go home and change? You know, I'm literally in a white button down and like a black <laughs> pencil skirt. Pencil skirt. <laughs> and and they're like, nope, nope, you're fine. And they gave me a few words of advice and they like sent me in. And I sat down and we talked for maybe five minutes and I walked out and I was like, I, I did not get that job. So let me ask you this because I'm not even sure in those years, I really knew who Anna Wintour was. Yeah. I think I knew I a didn't little really bit about either. Vogue. I mean, that I think was, that was kind of part of the interesting thing. Yeah. I had a lot of friends who were working in magazines at yeah. that point. And I don't remember her being the person yeah. who people were scared of, because I don't even really remember her name so much. I would see her on guest lists and things yes. like that. Yes, But there was definitely, at some point, this moment where all of a sudden she was omnipresent yes. and the name was everywhere. And I can't recall when that was. So it's interesting when you say that. I'm like, I wonder if I would have even gone into that interview and been knowing enough to be scared or worried yeah. or something like that. So I had had an internship at Harper's a few summers before. So I had heard her name. Got it. Okay. And I was interning in Glenda Bailey's office. Oh, and, and so I so understood the, the sort of, you know, the dynamic and dare I call it the competition but I didn't really know her either in yeah. that world. You know, yeah. I had heard of her and I understood she was an important person. Yes. But I wasn't an insider. You know, it, yeah. to your point, it was very much insider baseball. You know, the people who knew Anna were people who really lived and breathed fashion. Yeah. It wasn't at quite yet sort of the sort of cultural zeitgeist. Tran- transformative kind of transcendent thing that it is now yes. that sort of, you know, that reaches over all business and all cultural whatever. But in any case, I did understand like the gravity of that when I went in. 
So then what happened next? So I was almost positive I didn't get the job. I sort of had a laugh about it with Adam and my sister. And they were like, of course, you went in with, you know, looking like a total dud and <laughs> the whole thing. Thanks, and, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, um, and then the next day they called me and told me I got the job. And I was shocked. I didn't even know I was interviewing for the job, really. I mean, I, I went in thinking I was just going to be like, here's who I am. Here's what I've done so far, you know, and then we'll go see, you know, if there are opportunities. But And what was the job? Her second assistant. So this is a real thing then. There is yeah. a second assistant to the assistant. Yes. As we've all seen in Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> yes, there is. So what did you wear the first day to work, Silvana? So I had also worked at Ralph Lauren in retail, which I think is very important to work in retail, by the way, if you're interested in fashion to see how the store works. I learned how to fold all the things. And so I worked in retail the summer before. And so I got, you Discounts. know, they had this crazy employee sale. Uh -huh. and so I was able to buy a few things at Ralph. And so I wore this Ralph Lauren beige ruffled skirt with like a white t-shirt and like a scarf and a heel <laughs> I love it. And I love that you can still remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah first yeah. day. And I didn't have a desk because the first assistant hadn't transitioned yet. And so I was sitting like in a chair with my computer on my lap, oh my God. <laughs> just sitting there. And then they would just send me to do things, you know, all day long. But did you love it? I loved it. I yeah. loved it. I loved my whole time at Vogue. Yeah. I will say it was my business school. It was where I grew up. It was where I learned how to, you know, to to be like, you know, if I if I can even say this, but Anna was inspiring. You know, mm -hmm. she she was a big reason I felt confident to leave. Yeah. And do my own thing. Because, you know, she could do anything. She was sort of this force that truly could do anything and talk to anyone. And you're just watching that as yeah. a young woman thinking, well, if she's achieved this level of success, maybe over the time I can too. Absolutely. And you really did. So you started out working as her assistant mm -hmm. and then you transferred into the job of accessories yeah, editor. I was that accessory great? editor. So I was in charge of shoes and bags. And then after that, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff yeah. was heading up events at the time. She left and Anna asked me to take that job, which was a total surprise because I had never done events and sort of had fancied myself a fashion editor and was going to, you know, go to the shows in Europe and do that thing and be that person. And when she asked me to do it, I was confused. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, that's actually not what I'm yeah. going to do. She's like, no, that's actually is what you're going to do. But, you know, when she says that you're going to do something, you're, you kind of trust her because she has a vision. She always has a vision. Yeah. So I did it. And I mean, it was, it was, you know, water from a hydrant. It was a, a steep learning curve. It was a world I had not had, you know, never been a part of. I hadn't, you know, run of show was a total foreign, you know, phrase to me. I enjoy entertaining. I always have. Yeah. And so that part really excited me. And it was an incredible way to network and to work cl really closely with Anna, which is really ultimately why I loved it so much, was just being with her and understanding her brain and kind of being her right hand on a lot of those types of initiatives. And learning probably just through osmosis of yeah. names and the way to do things and yeah. the proper way to do things. And so we intersected. And I don't know, I have such a distinct memory of you coming to Christie's. We were working on a partnership around the green auction, yeah. which was probably 2011. I mean, this was a long yes. time ago. Yes. Okay. And it was before Nicki Minaj was Nicki Minaj. Yes. And I think Anna was about to put her on the cover, perhaps, of okay. Vogue. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I might be remembering these things backwards, but I definitely remember us working on this event together and sitting there with the guest list and the names all on, you know, different colored post-it notes that were sort uh -huh. of laid around the floor. Uh -huh. 
and just thinking you were so cool and calm and collected. And I remember the phone kept ringing and it was Anna calling yeah. you. And I remember saying to you, you put it down and I was like, is that Anna Wintour? Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it was really cool. And you're like, yeah, no, it's just an average day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even at that point, it was very clear that you had everything under control and that no matter what was happening, which I think that evening there were a lot of things that happened, it was not mm-hmm. going to phase you at all. Well, you know, the appearance of having it under control is very important, yes. particularly for someone like Anna who puts a lot of trust and delegates a lot. And so the green auction was actually my first sort of event that she just gave to me and was sort of like hands off on. Yeah. And it was a real test. And so I was stressed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You Um, didn't show it. And when we booked Nicki Minaj, I think Nicki came on the cover later because she didn't really know who she was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nicki has a very um, aggressive, you know, style. Her songs are expletive or they have lots of expletives in them. It's, you know, a little bit raunchy, et cetera, et cetera. It's not exactly her taste, but I knew she was up and coming and I thought it would just kind of add some spice. Yeah, <laughs> which it did. Which it, it definitely did. did. And then when she performed, I was like, oh my God, did I just get fired? No. Am I fired? <laughs> I was um, in the middle of Christie's and Nicki yeah, Minaj was, like, was Literally, it was like this, like, this you know, these incredibly named families from New York City who <laughs> were... Blue Blazers yes, that night. Yeah. Exactly. And, they, and I remember Graydon looking at me and being like, who... <laughs> Um, who booked her? And I, and I sort of slowly raised my hand. And he thought it was great. He, he did was, think he it was thought great. it was great, but he was shocked that this was like an Anna Wintour <laughs> event. Approved event. Um, but I think that that's also a huge part of staying relevant. Yeah. Being, being yeah. able to see those things and realize like it may be time for a shift. Because yeah. I definitely remember no one didn't talk about the green yeah. auction after that. I mean, yeah. people definitely wanted to come back and partner with us again the next mm-hmm. year and the next mm-hmm. year. So I'm glad to hear that. It made, <laughs> it made a mark. <laughs> I, I did not get fired. Get fired so. yeah. <laughs> I got a promotion after that. No. Yeah. Um, but no, I thought it was great. And so f- you obviously continued to do this. And really what is the penultimate of all entertaining mm-hmm. in New York City is the Met Ball. Mm-hmm. So when did that come into your world, the Met Gala really took on a life of its own over the course of my career, certainly. You know, it was something that people attended, but then it was something that everybody attends. Right. So how did that happen? So when I started, I remember Anna's fundraising goal for me, and I was sort of blown away by it. And I was so nervous that I wasn't going to get there, right? And then... You know, I was sort of was shown the list of people that were always invited and, and how it all worked. And I was just sort of goal oriented. I always have been. And a challenge is something that I really love. And I love to prove people wrong. And no one had ever raised this much for the gala. And so I was sort of hell bent on getting there. And we did. And so it was the first year I was there. And, you know, I think the thing about the Met Gala is it just gets bigger and better every year. The bar is just raised. Yes. That's all Anna. I mean, she really pushes to create this sort of otherworldly experience. And that's why people keep coming back because they know they're going to see something that is extraordinary, yeah. right? That is that is priceless. Yeah. And it's also a place where people feel really comfortable. I think she goes to great lengths to make sure that the celebrities in the room feel like they're not, you know, vulnerable or exposed. There's, there's no security allowed. I mean, it's really... There's no press inside except for, you know, our photographers slash their photographers. I I still say our. (laughs) Um, But it is the whole point was to make people feel really comfortable. Mm -hmm. 
um, so that they could have a great time and and also to expose. I mean, obviously, the, the the larger point is to expose the Costume Institute, which is this incredible, incredible resource that the the museum has, but nobody really knows about. Right. And this was the only source of funding. I mean, they have garments from 15th century in there. Amazing. And the way they the way they keep these garments is sort of feels like a Star Wars film. You know, like you have to like go into this chamber and get airblown and then you enter and it's all white and it feels incredibly futuristic. But she has so much passion for it. Yeah. And she was so smart to align Vogue with this institute because it, it made so much sense. Yeah, there's and it was, such a continuity yeah. through it, of course. And it was backed by this incredible museum. And, and so it's a powerhouse, that franchise now. You did actually, you obviously ran from this as a child, but then you did end up being yeah. in a movie, yeah. which was... I produced it. You produced that. I yeah. actually saw that. So explain to me, how that, how did that happen? How did that all come about? So I like to say, it was. I think it was around 2012, 2013, but there was obviously a huge move to digital. And we were actually pretty late to the digital sort of frontier at Conde Nast. We had kind of older versions of like the titles on the web. You know, there was a Vogue.com, but it was incredibly low. You know, it was like an MVP version. Yeah. Um, and so we basically were tasked with in a world where, you know, print was kind of in decline, publishing was going online. All of the brands and Anna in particular, we were tasked with sort of figuring out a way to monetize content. Like there were very few paywalls at that time. Mm -hmm. We had all of this con—I mean, incredible content. If you think about New Yorker, if you think about Vanity Fair, all of the titles that were just getting—we were just distributing basically for free. Yeah, we thought about all sorts of things. It was sort of this is the reason I say this all the time. We—it was sort of a million startups under the the umbrella of Kanye Nass, and we could really do whatever we wanted. We we thought about digital channels. We had all these shows. We started producing these digital shows that were two minutes in length. We started a studio, Kanye Nass Entertainment. And so we did documentaries. And one of the documentaries was the first Monday in May. And so it was really fun. It was sort of from ideation to execution. You know, I had to find the money for it and then sort of project manage it. And that's sort of how I felt that I could do something like a startup because I loved owning the process. Really? I loved kind of being the manager and working with people and, you know, seeing a final product. So yeah, so the first Monday in May came from that and it was a great success and it was really fun to, I, I remember my sister saying something like, you've been running from this your whole life and somehow you're here. I asked her. <laughs> right in front of the camera. There you are. She, my sister is now a movie producer. And so I had, I had her come see a screening of it and she gave me notes and she was like, you know, we could do this if you wanted to. And I was like, no, I no. this is just, a, I'm just like, you know. Putting just, my toe in. Yeah. Yeah. Just dipping, a little bit. Dipping the toe. So you said that this was kind of what gave you the confidence to start thinking about leaving Vogue. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, is there any great story you can share with us of something that happened along the way during your 14 years there that still kind of keeps you up at night? Nicki Minaj aside. <laughs> oh, my God. I almost killed Anna's dog. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Like um, that's the cover of a New York yeah. Post article if um, I've ever heard of one. <laughs> yeah. It was my first year as her assistant. Oh, no. And part of my duties was, I'm, and this is widely known, so I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, but you bring the book to her every night. She looks at, she looks at a version of the magazine every single night. And so on one particular night, she was out to dinner and she said, can you put the dog out? Her name was Sandy. And she said, can you put Sandy out? And I said, <laughs> sure. And in my mind, like put the dog out means like put it out. And then it comes back. And, no. And, oh. and like someone else is going to 
bring like you want them to stay out, oh, right? Oh. <laughs> right? Don't you want them to stay out? <laughs> Joe's nodding. Instead of like take the dog out and to me implies like take them out and then bring them back in, but like yeah. put the dog out. So I was like, "Oh, she's at dinner. She's going to come back. She probably doesn't want him in the house while she's at dinner, so I'm just going to put the dog out for good." And that night it snowed about 3 inches. Oh no. And I get a call at five in the morning oh, no. from her house, or no, from her. And she's like, where's Sandy? <laughs> <laughs> and I literally like saw my life flash before my eyes. And then I saw like an image of Sandy sort of like rigor mortis on her back, like oh, under snow. And so I'm calling the housekeeper and I'm like, I'm done. This is it. <laughs> this is literally the last and, day of my job. And the housekeeper's like, we're looking for her. Like, we'll, f- we'll figure it out. Like, I'll let you know. I come into the office because I was the first assistant, so I had to be there pretty early. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And Anna comes in and she looks at me and she just puts her head down and then she just starts laughing. Oh, my just goodness. Just hysterically laughing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm glad the story went in this direction. I did not oh know that it was. Oh, my God. And she said, we found Sandy. He was at the neighbor's, Savannah. Oh and I was, I, was, I was like apoplectic. I was crying. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so apologetic. And she just thought it was so funny because she knew how, what the gravity of that could have been. Yes, exactly. The other side of that story has no laughter whatsoever no. and no job no, for Savannah no, no. on the other side of that. No, no, oh, no. God. Well, I'm glad you recovered from that and I'm yeah. glad that Sandy lived to see another Sandy day. Sandy did live. Did she live. did live, yes. It was cold, but she lived. <laughs> she lived <laughs> and she lived. So we talked about this a little bit before the podcast mm-hmm. about leaving a company like Vogue. Yeah. Leaving a named company where you are a name within this company yeah. and those things are synonymous. Sure. How did that decision come and what did it feel like on the first day walking out into a new role? It's terrifying. I will say it was the number one reason I didn't leave for so long because you derive so much of your identity from particularly at Vogue. You know, working at Vogue is this incredibly, obviously aspirational thing, but once you're there, you're in this sort of bubble, right? And you drink the Kool-Aid and you're so loyal and you are so behind every aspect of it because Anna does such a good job of building the brand, you know? By the way, that's deserved, you know? Like I drank the Kool-Aid willingly and knowingly, you know? And I think that, you know, and there's a lot of clout that you you carry from that position, right? And to your point, fashion really transcended fashion in that you know, gener- like that decade or so. Yeah, yeah. And Anna was far more visible. You know, we were talking to heads of state. We were talking to, there was nobody we weren't talking to. Yeah. And all things sort of led to Anna yeah. somehow. You know, if anyone in any other business needed something in New York City to be done, yeah. they would come to Anna because mm-hmm. she was so obviously active politically, but active in the city and fashion's night out. And, you know, she really, she really, sort of built Vogue to be a resource Mm -hmm. for the city and the fashion industry and young designers and, you know, everything else. So, yeah, it was terrifying. You know, I was like, I'm never going to get a reservation again. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the things that really matter. You're like, how will I ever get there? How can I get the 8 p.m. reservation? Exactly. And, you know, all of the things. And really, it's more that just you fear that you're just going to sort of like flit away and it's just no one's going to remember who you are and you're always going to be that. I had this sort of fear because I I had a a family friend who her favorite thing to say to me is that she was was an editor at Cosmopolitan. And this is like a 60-year-old woman. I'm like, if I turn into this woman. Yeah. And I'm just talking about how I was an editor at Vogue. I'm just going to, why? You know, that's horrible. Yeah. (laughs) But it's also true because I think in New York City, and I'm not sure that this is like that everywhere, but there is so much about who you are 
based on what you do. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think especially pre-COVID, yeah. that Silvana Durrett, comma, Vogue. Yeah was a huge thing. Yes. And even in those early years. But I remember reading that you were leaving and thinking, yeah. wow, I can't believe she's leaving. I wonder what that's about. Yeah. And then seeing the news yeah. and being like, well, if you're going to leave, yeah. that's a smart reason to do it. Yeah. I think the only reason I could have left was doing what I was doing, right? I would not have gone to another magazine. I was not interested in a corporate job. I wanted to build something and I wanted to be known for something beyond Vogue. Yeah. You know, I wanted to do something on my own that wasn't scaffolded by this ma massive brand, you know. And so what was that? So Maisonette, I founded with my co-founder and one of my oldest friends, Luisana, who I met at Vogue as well. She was my second assistant. I have so many good stories about Luisana's tenure. <laughs> So we were talking one day and we knew we had always wanted to do something. We had done a, a bit of entrepreneurial work. We did this thing called Runway to Change yeah. um, for the Obama campaign and we worked closely on it and it was super fun and we both sort of had the same ideas and interests and, you know, we both had young kids at the time. And so we were we were kind of just complaining about how hard it was for us to shop for our kids online. And there were rumors that Netta Porter was going to do kids, that, you know, Farfetch was going to do kids. All these people were going to do kids. And it was crazy to me that there wasn't sort of a centralized place to get the things you needed for your kids, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about your adult life, you can go to any number of online locations to get every category in your life, whether it's your clothing, your dogs, your coffee, your groceries. Like The online experience has made it very easy to get almost anything yeah. in a particular category, except for your kids. And yeah. and the things that were sort of available were things like Bye Bye Baby, you know, RIP, Babies Are Us. All of these things were like you as a mom, as I'm sure you know, you are in that phase for a second. Yes. You know, and then you are done and then your kid grows up and you have the next 18 years to provide for them and buy things for them and they grow and they need new things. And by the way, you care about aesthetics. You care about what their rooms look like. You yeah. care that they're not going to eat lead paint on their crib. You yeah. care about it's not flammable. Yeah, like that, yeah. You want to give them the best things you can give them. You want to, you know, you want to give them stem toys instead of a plastic other toy. So we really wanted to bring that assortment that was sort of this like very thoughtful assortment that you couldn't find everywhere that wasn't on Amazon and put it in one place and make it super easy for you to get those things here. So that was Maisonette. And how did that first day go? You know, you leave Vogue and all of a sudden you're printing out your Maisonette business card. Oh, yeah. So what did that feel like? It was crazy. It was crazy. You know, you know, people don't take your phone calls as much. You know, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to network a lot at Vogue. And so there were many people who wanted to support me, but there were many who were sort of, you see, yeah. it happens. Yeah, it does 100% happen who would not take that call. But I sort of didn't take a break at all. Yeah. I went from one thing to the next and it was full speed ahead, all guns blazing. And I didn't stop until I raised the money and I launched the site. And now here we are seven years later. Seven years later, gosh. Yeah. So what were some of your biggest learnings? Because we have a lot of entrepreneurs who yeah. listen to this podcast. I actually get a lot of DMs from people being like, thank you for that tip or thank yeah. you for yeah. not me, the yeah. person who's sharing it. But mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know, like, what have you learned in these seven years especially starting so at the much. beginning. So much. Give us some. Give us a, a business class 101 here, Solana. Um, I never went to business school. Yeah. I had never owned a P&L. Mm -hmm. I didn't even really know what that meant, right? I, I mean, I obviously knew what that meant. I, I owned budgets while I was at Vogue and all of those things, particularly with the Met. You know, it was a business school sort of like I was thrown in mm -hmm. 
and there was no help. Yeah. It was sort of just sort of as things came, I would just learn them. Yeah. And that was great in a lot of ways because it forces you to, to do the work and to figure it out. And there's nobody helping you. So it's, it's just on you. Yeah. You don't have an assistant who can help you do it. You know, you're just doing it. You're doing the work. I would say we launched at a time where the unicorn startup was the goal. Yeah. And the money that you raised was really meant to be invested in growth. Yeah. There was very little said about profitability. Yeah. And I remember my husband being like, what, you know, it's so crazy to me because he was in private equity, which is very different than venture. Yeah. And for them, you have to be profitable. I mean, there's no there there if you're yeah. not profitable. But in venture, it was all about showing traction, mm -hmm. getting product market fit, getting as many customers as you could. And then you could start thinking about, you know, the next step profitability or, yeah. and all those things. And so, so many brands like ours were just on this treadmill of growth and we had crazy growth. We, you know, we had hundred percent growth Kager for five years, which is insane. And how were you doing that? Was that grassroots or? Um, early days, it was grassroots. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, early days, it was a lot of press because we had all those connections. Yeah. And then we started paid marketing, which for many startups, that's sort of how you acquire customers, right? And once you get on that paid marketing treadmill, it's really difficult to get oh, off of it. Yeah. And so I think, what would I have done differently? I would have tried to become profitable almost immediately, almost mm -hmm. in the first year. Or I, and I would say that to anyone starting a business now, because by the way, venture capital is not interested in you. If you're just growing, you need to show a path to profitability. That's very different than when I started. And I would say, be very careful about the money you take. And I think so many startups right now in particular, it's impossible to raise money. Yeah. And so you're just willing to take anything and any terms and all of the things. And you need to be eyes wide open about the people who invest in you. Do you and, say that from experience or? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think particularly as women, mm -hmm. there's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of politics. And I think it's way better to grow slowly and to build a forever business than grow quickly and lose control of your business. I yeah. mean, truly, that's what happens. You lose control yeah. and you get diluted. And this thing, you know, not that I'm speaking from experience. But this thing that you've been building for seven years um, <laughs> is no longer, you know, you own very little of it. Yeah. And so that's, I think, what a lot of founders are going through right now in my cohort, right? It's mm -hmm. sort of in the last year and a half with the with sort of the recession and the macro environment and capital drying up, we've all had to sort of cut costs and get to profitability. And that means, you know, getting, especially if you still need to be funded, really punitive terms. Yeah. And that's fine because I think the North Star for us right now is profitability and retaking control of the business mm -hmm. so that we aren't beholden to investors any longer. Yeah. And luckily, we are in a position to do that. We have capital in the business to do that. It's just been a long road. It's been a long road. Yeah. It's so interesting talking to people who've stepped out onto their own about yeah. the path, you know, yeah. what they thought it was going to be, how it completely evolved and turned mm -hmm. and twisted and now doesn't necessarily look the way you thought it would. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that? Or do you feel like when you think back seven years ago, this is what you wanted it to be and here it is? You know, I talked to my therapist about this weekly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in my last session, she said, write down everything that's valuable that you've gained from this experience. Because right now it's so hard. It's been such a tough year for you know, everyone, but just in terms of performance and, and the, all these businesses are going through rifts. We had to mm -hmm. let people go. You know, those yeah. things are way heavily on me. Like these, like the people who work for me are my family. Yeah. Yeah. But you do what you have to do to get this business across. And nobody sees that really, right? Because the business continues on. People are shopping, yeah. you know, and we're doing great things and we're still 
totally good, right? The business yeah. is going to be great. It's just the inner workings, the things that go on behind the scenes are really tough. Yeah. You know, in the last 16 months, it's been a lot of, I've been doing the things I don't love to do. I've had to do the things I don't love to do because I have to make sure that the business survives and is properly funded and, and all the things and is getting to profitability. But I have learned I would not do it differently, even though I would I would think about money differently and I would think about profitability differently. But I've learned so much. Mm. I went from knowing really nothing about business to knowing a lot more. I went from sort of understanding a little bit about kind of technology, a little bit about markets. I feel like I'm an expert in these things now, which <laughs> like, now I you teach would, a class. Yeah. <laughs> if you were if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have laughed in your face. Yeah. I have autonomy over my life. I can see my kids when I want to. Yeah. It's a subject matter that I love, obviously. And I've changed people's lives. I mean, I'm not curing cancer. I am very aware of that. But the amount of people who come up to me and say, I found this on your side. I'm obsessed with it. Or this thing made my kids day, this Halloween costume or this, you know, that makes it, you realize that it's actually needed, right? Yeah. It's not just a fluffy, fun website you go to. It's people need this in their lives. It helps them. It helps them spend less time shopping and more time with their kids. And that's really important. Yeah. And speaking of that, and we talked a little bit about this before too. We're both moms of three. Yeah. What do you think helps you get through that time when you are feeling the guilt of being a working mom with three kids? Because I certainly feel it too. And I don't oh know God. that another mom who doesn't. You it know, doesn't go away. It doesn't go away, especially when you own your business because there's no end. There's right? no end. You're always working. You're always working. And you're always on your phone. And I and they remind me to put my phone down, which yeah. is embarrassing. Yeah. But they're also really proud of me. Yeah. And I would say that there are many times at drop off where like out of nowhere, my six-year-old will just look at another mom and say, my mom's the CEO of Maisonette. Yeah, I love that. And she doesn't even know what a CEO is. <laughs> yeah. But she knows that's important. She knows important. the CEO's the boss. Yeah. <laughs> that's what she knows. And it's, I'm I'm embarrassed by it because I'm like, okay, okay, thank you, thank you. You're very, very sweet, very sweet of you. But they know that it's a big deal to run a business and, and they see the sacrifice and that's awesome for yeah. them, you yeah. know? Especially because you have two daughters as well yes. and your son, you know, but yeah. it is, I think, for girls to see a mom who's really taking ownership of her life and running her own yeah. company yeah. is exciting. Yeah. It's really I mean, my, exciting. my daughter asked me the other day, you know, so-and-so's mom picks her up every day. Why can't you pick me up every day? Totally. Yeah. And instead of saying, I know, oh my God, I hate it. I wish I could. I was like, I love my job. Yeah. I really wanted her to understand that I like working. Yeah. Agreed. And I make a decision not to pick you up. I love you so much, but I make this decision because it makes me happy. Yeah. And I want you to feel that too. Yeah. And I think that's really, you have to lead by example. Agreed. Totally agree. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap that up. What a wonderful last sort of moment <gasps> for all of us and yeah. so much wisdom and this incredible path is such an exciting thing to wow. listen to. I'm sure that there are so many people who are going to listen to this on, on so many different levels and learn so much from it. So thank you for sharing Thanks so for much. Having for, me. No, I mean, honestly, you've been so open, which is always such a great thing when you're talking to a guest to really get to know them, even though you know yeah. them. So yeah. I want to ask you, where can we find you? Obviously, Maisonette on Instagram. Tell us all the places that we can look for you, your career, any um, advice that you're giving. God, I, on Instagram, I don't really give it uh, at Sylvanitas, I think is my thing. And then I guess just on Maisonette. Maisonette. <laughs> we'll keep looking for you on Maisonette for sure. Yeah. And I want to just, instead of asking people a question, which is often what I do at the very end of this, I want to just say to the listeners something that you said earlier. Have you spent any time writing down the things that are valuable to you? No, and I wish I would. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about that lately because 
I think we all have a story to tell. Yeah. You know, I think we all do. And I think about it a lot and I want to do it and I haven't done it, but I've in the last few months, I've really thought about doing it. And hopefully coming out of this and reading your book, I'm going to start doing it. Well, I will say I look forward to the day that you write your book and I'm going to say it here because I'm ready to read it. So get writing. And to everyone who's listening, I hope you'll spend a couple of minutes after listening to this podcast, writing down what's valuable to you. And it's important that we all think about that because otherwise life passes us by and we're not necessarily prioritizing the things that we want to. Totally. Well, thank you again for joining us, Silvana. Thank you to Joe, our amazing producer who makes everything Wonderful. And also I love because he laughs as we talk and I can see him. <laughs> so I always know the parts that he loves. So thank you for being here, Joe. Thank you to Rockefeller Center oh, and Newsstand Studios. Ever. I know for this fantastic studio that I love so much. And I feel like I spend so much great time in here. So thank you for being part of it. And before I wrap up this podcast, I also want to share some really exciting news. I want to give you guys a teaser for season two. As you guys know, I have two brothers and a really strong father who've had a huge influence over the course of my life, as has my mother and my sister. One thing I know, having grown up with that family dynamic, is that women do not have the corner on insecurity, and we're not the only ones who struggle with confidence. And so I thought it might be fun to mix up season two a little bit and invite one of my really good guy friends to kick off the season in order to talk a little bit about the confidence journey. Season two, which starts at the beginning of February, kicks off with Henrik Lundqvist. He was the goalie for the New York Rangers. He is an incredible man, but in addition to that, He was at the top of his game when he found out that his heart condition was never going to allow him to play hockey again. So I have a million questions I want to ask him. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this, and I cannot wait to introduce a whole new series of guests as we embark on season two of Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Thanks, and have a wonderful week.